This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hi, everybody. My name is Jessica. You're listening to Monster Books Podcast, the podcast where we talk about kids' horror books that adult horror fans will love. So today's topic is slashers. Uh, It's an evergreen topic. You know, not everybody loves slashers, but it's a really popular subgenre in horror. It's one that I really love. So I'm excited to talk about it today. I'm doing something a little different today, though. I'm just going to talk about one book because it's one that's been on my mind a lot lately. It's one that I really loved and it's something that I think I can go really deep on. So we're going to try it out just talking about one book today. You know, as always, if you've got thoughts on an episode, if you like one format over another, um, or if you just want to talk about the books with me, let me know. I'm on Twitter at MonsterBooksPod. We're going to get a little political today again, because the book I'm talking about is one of the most political books that I featured on the show so far. And I harp on it every week. You know, horror is very political. And in a lot of people's minds, slashers can skew very conservative in the messages that they send. You know, people think of the slasher formula or... Like Randy says in Scream, the slasher rules, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex, don't stray from the strict morality that was especially prevalent in American politics in the 80s with the moral majority. You can interpret a lot of the popular slasher movies as punishing people, especially young women, for doing things that were deemed immoral or wrong drinking, doing drugs, having sex, taking your clothes off. And, you know, I could do a laundry list of some of the slashers that adhere to those rules. Obviously, there are quite a few slashers that may appear to espouse that strict code of morality, but do not, in fact, really support it. And there are a lot of really progressive slashers out there. You know, one of my absolute favorite movies, one of the earliest slasher films, Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark, is a really progressive, really feminist slasher movie. So I'm not trying to paint every slasher story with a broad brush or say that everyone who's ever made a slasher movie or everybody who ever made a movie about, you know, a girl who goes skinny dipping or has sex and then gets killed off in the next reel. I'm not saying that they are misogynists or moralizers. I'm not trying to make that argument. But it's a popular conception, especially, as I stated, with the slasher rules that were codified in the minds of the average consumer in 96 with Scream. So when you're working with slashers, there's a preconceived notion of what the rules are in a slasher story and the stock characters. You know, oftentimes representation of women in horror is an issue. Representation of characters of color in horror is an issue. It's a cliche for a reason that a black character in a horror movie gets killed off first. That's a common thing. There is a race issue in horror as well with not having enough black characters and other characters of color and making sure that when they are in films, they're not just there for a split second just to say, oh, well, we've got some color in the cast and then they're killed off immediately. So automatically, slashers are already pretty political dealing with representation and how we punish people for their behaviors or depict people or decide the way to act that allows someone to survive. So I'm always thinking about slashers just because I'm obsessed with that subgenre. But especially now, we are, um, at the time of recording this episode, we're about a month and a half out from the American presidential election. 
And I think for most people, especially if you belong to a marginalized group, you can't ever not think about politics because politics is your daily life. It affects how you live. It affects whether you live sometimes. So it's not like if an election goes the way you want it to, you get to stop thinking about politics for two years or four years or however long it is. But since we are a month and a half out from the election, I have been thinking about politics a lot. And especially with this book being a pretty explicit indictment of the Trump administration, I've been thinking about this book a lot. We're talking about Clown in a Cornfield by Adam Caesar. It's one of my favorite reads this year. I got so excited about it that I published the review like four months early, like four months in advance of when it was actually released. And I feel like an idiot for doing that because, you know, it's one thing to publish, you know, a few weeks before a book is released, but, you know, a few months, I feel like I made a mistake there. So my apologies to Adam Caesar for publishing my review so early. But I was just so excited about it when I got the advanced reader copy of it. I was so excited about it. I wanted to talk about it. And just publish the review immediately because I was like, okay, everybody needs to read this book. Horror fans, YA fans, slasher fans, you know, everybody needs to read this book. So I got way too excited. I published my review early. And that's one reason that I wanted just to talk about this book today because there's so much to dive into. We're going to go ahead and get started. So Clown in a Cornfield. I've spoken before about how titles grab me. I talked about it with The Dark Deep, how a title or a cover will just grab me immediately. And you best believe when I heard that this was called Clown in a Cornfield, I got really excited about it. I mean, come on. There are very few things that I find creepier than clowns and cornfields. And when you combine them, it's like every horror trope that I love rolled into one. And the cover is incredible. Uh, the cover is by Matt Ryan Tobin. It's this amazing image of this red and black nighttime scene of a cornfield. And the corn is formed to look like this evil laughing clown face. It's fantastic. I'm a little disjointed today because uh, when I get really excited about things, my thoughts get a little dysregulated. So if I'm all over the place even more than usual, I apologize. Um, I hope that just lets you know how enthusiastic I am about this book and how much I want you to read it if you haven't already. The synopsis reads, Quinn Maybrook just wants to make it until graduation. She might not make it to morning. Quinn and her father moved to tiny, boring Kettle Springs to find a fresh start. But ever since the Bay Pin corn syrup factory shut down, Kettle Springs has cracked in half. On one side are the adults, who are desperate to make Kettle Springs great again. And on the other are the kids, who want to have fun, make prank videos, and get out of Kettle Springs as quick as they can. Kettle Springs is caught in a battle between old and new, tradition and progress. It's a fight that looks like it will destroy the town, until Frendo, the Bay Pin mascot, a creepy clown in a pork pie hat, goes homicidal and decides that the only way for Kettle Springs to grow back is to cull the rotten crop of kids who live there now. The best way I can describe this book is it's the burning meets a Gen Z footloose. There's a really pointed message about the inevitability of social and political progress in this book. We've got a town where the older generation want to go back to the good old days. They want to, I mean, there's an explicit reference to making America great again. And it's about returning to this false notion of back when America was great. But of course, the people who are espousing this ideology aren't asking themselves great for whom, because it was great for them. 
it was great for straight white people who didn't have to worry about where their money was coming from, whether they had health insurance, whether somebody was going to attack them on the street, whether someone was going to assault them. So it was great for a certain group of people. But the younger generation in the book, it's much more diverse. Adam Caesar presents the internet as a bit of a double-edged sword, but on the whole, the, the internet is a tool to gain empathy for other people you might not otherwise have the chance to meet. Not everybody lives in a really demographically diverse place. You might not have a lot of people from different countries or different races, or you might not hear a lot of different languages where you live, or there might not be a lot of economic diversity. Everybody might be really well-to-do where you live. But on the whole, Caesar is showing that the internet can connect people. If you're the only gay kid in town that you know of, you can connect with other people who have the same experience as you. You can feel less alone. You can know there's nothing wrong with me. You know, there are people who feel like me and there are people who know that there's not a thing wrong with me and I feel less alone. I have a sense of community that I can't find in my geographic area. You know, he also points out that there are downsides to the internet. On the one hand, you've got kind of a toxic influencer culture where uh, the book starts out with a prank that goes horribly awry and kind of sets off this reactionary punishment from the older crowd in the town. Uh, they kind of lock down on things. They clamp down and try to punish the kids and rein everything back in and try to gain back control of their lives because the older generation feels like their lives are spinning out of control because they don't understand the younger kids. And that's why I talk about Footloose a bit, um, which I might be dating myself with that uh, <laughs> reference, which brings up another point that I want to get to in a minute. But so and Caesar doesn't let the kids off the hook for that. Obviously, you have to take personal responsibility. And there are anybody who's spent two seconds on the internet knows that there are dark corners of the internet. And just like you can build a community of support and love and understanding online, you can also build a community of hate and bigotry and abuse online. And there are kids in this book who their crueler impulses are validated when they find a specific community online. Unironically refer to people as cucks and snowflakes. They find 4chan or reddit or whatever you know what pick your site pick your social media platform um they find groups that validate views of the world that are more narrow-minded that are more hateful that seek to demonize anybody who doesn't look or act or think exactly like them and this is something that the younger kids go through too so even though there is a generation clash in Clown in the Cornfield, it's not as simple as the older people are bad, the younger people are good. It's not that reductive because there are some people in the older generation who are allies to the younger kids. And there are some, we'll say collaborators in the younger generation who, you know, in my view, betray the younger crowd and betray the more progressive ideals of their classmates because these are high school kids that we're dealing with. So yeah, there's a lot more nuance than just old people bad, young people good. On the whole, the book seems pretty optimistic about the future, saying, you know, the younger generation is, they are more open, they are more inclusive, they are more open-minded, they want what's best for everybody, not just to maintain the status quo that keeps them in power and screw everybody else if they don't happen to be in my group. But the book also cautions that danger is constantly lurking on the outside. You know, like, I, honestly, like any good horror story, it talks about 
how the danger is always there. The danger is never defeated. You can never get rid of evil. You can never get rid of horrors that threaten you. And as long as there are people in power, there will be people who seek to maintain the status quo to keep that power. There will be people who want other people to be powerless so that they can gain power or stay in power. That's what politics is about. That's what this book is about is who has power, who has the right to be themselves and who has the right to have that self respected by others. And there's a lot of resentment in this book. And there's a lot of, you know, lingering hatreds, lingering blame. In the current American political situation, I have been thinking a lot about, I'm a big believer in holding grudges. <laughs> if I've got any astrology enthusiasts out there, I, yes, I am a Scorpio. And some people say forgive and forget. I've said in the past, forgive, but never forget. But I'm not so big on the forgiveness. So I appreciate Caesar's message of constant vigilance. To protect people and make sure that everybody has the same rights, we have to be vigilant against people in power or people who want power, who want to trample on those rights to, to gain that power. So I'm, I'm trying not to get too far afield from talking about this book, and I don't really want to turn this into a strictly political podcast. But as I've said before, horror is political. You can't escape politics. And if you want to completely divorce politics from your horror, I would submit that you are missing a lot of deeper meanings and deeper nuance and interesting conversations and interesting thoughts about horror. But I, I understand completely the desire to turn your brain off sometimes and just watch some kids get mowed down with a chainsaw. I get that 100%. I love a bloody kill. I love a gory movie. I love gallons and gallons of corn syrup splattered all over a movie set. I love it. So, you know, <laughs> if that's what you're looking for, this book will deliver. I mean, there are so many fun set pieces in this book. There are so many different weapons and ways that these teenagers are dispatched, <laughs> which if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not freaked out by the fact that I'm giggling over that. I hope you're not freaked out by it. But, you know, there are fires and there are chainsaws and there are arrows and crossbows and shotguns and knives. And <laughs> like, this is a gory book. This is a bloody book. It's really violent. And I loved every second of it. It's really, it's really suspenseful, but it's really, you know, if you are wanting a story where it's just, let's chop these people up, let's just set up dozens of teenagers and then just mow them down. That's what you're going to get with this book too. It's not mindless. It's not blood for blood's sake, but it is gory slasher fun. It, it is a very modern book, but it is in many ways a throwback to 80s slashers. I mentioned the burning because, you know, there's definitely an element of vengeance that ties the two together. But also just because the burning has some of the best special effects and some of the best kills and set pieces I've seen in a slasher movie. And I would say the same thing for Clown in a Cornfield. But there are some really shocking moments and... You know, it's something that I recommend to people like, oh, you dig slashers? Oh, you, you like lots of blood? Okay, clown in a cornfield. Trust me. And, you know, obviously, if you dig creepy clowns, which I think a lot of people do. And like I said, there's so much to talk about with this book because Caesar is playing with so many different horror tropes and he's tying in so many different things, throwbacks to classic horror, explicitly tying in modern politics, which 
you know, I feel like kids, <laughs> I, I'm going to sound like I'm a hundred years old, but I feel like kids today are, you know, I think they're more politically involved than maybe in the past generation or two, at least at their age. Like I'm a millennial. Any Gen Xers listening might be yelling at me right now saying, well, I was political when I was a teenager or my fellow millennials might be doing the same thing. But I feel like so many more kids today are more politically involved. And that's definitely a good thing. I think political awareness is a good thing at an early age. I've, I've talked about it before. Politics is about what affects your everyday life, especially if you are in any of a number of marginalized groups. And knowing about politics, being involved in politics, caring about politics is a good thing. You know, I've... <laughs> I've kind of danced around it a few times now, but th there's a part of me that feels awkward talking about these books because I'm twice as old as most of the kids in these books. I'm 37 for the record. So sometimes I, I kind of doubt myself, like, d should I really be talking about a book that is written for a 12 year old? Or should I really be pontificating on Well, this is how teenagers act today, when clearly I have not been a teenager for a couple of decades now. And that was um, when I when I wrote the review of this book, you know, four months earlier than I should have. I talked about how the teenagers act and talk like teenagers. And that's something that I look for when I'm, you know, reading a kid's book or a YA book. Are they miniature adults or are they real kids? Because nothing annoys me more than writers who seem like they haven't ever met a child or met a teenager. But at the same time, I have to stop and ask myself, well, am I basing this on how I remember being as a teenager, you know, 20 plus years ago? Or do I know what kids today act and sound like? Every time I use the phrase kids today, I feel like I age by another 10 years. I, I feel like such an old woman even talking about it. But yeah, so I do struggle with that. Um, I struggle with, well, what gives me the right to say that this is an authentic teen voice? Because I'm not a teenager. You know, I have been a teenager before, but I'm not a teenager now. So I, I, sometimes I wonder where the line is. Like if I'm actually allowed to say, oh yeah, these, these kids sound like kids. So with that huge grain of salt given to you um, when judging my views on the subject, the kids in this book seem like kids to me. They don't seem, like I said, like miniature adults who act and talk and sound like adults discussing their 401ks. And, and they don't sound like babies, like far too immature or juvenile for the age they're supposed to be. They, they sound like real kids. And, you know, that's something I always look for because part of the reason that I love YA and middle grade fiction is I love seeing young characters work through problems. I love seeing them grow and change and not necessarily grow up either because not to sound like a bumper sticker or a live laugh love sign but growing up is overrated but growing and learning and changing these are admirable things and things that I think everybody should work toward so I like seeing kids work through problems solve problems on their own because a part of me you know I've never felt like a real adult the older I get the more I realize that pretty much every adult doesn't feel like a real adult. <laughs> but, you know, growing up, I thought uh, when I'm older, when I'm an adult, I'm going to feel so different, but I don't feel like a real adult. So seeing kids solve problems on their own and learn how to handle themselves 
it's really fulfilling for me to read that. And, you know, going back to slashers, one of my favorite scenes in Halloween, the original by John Carpenter, is when Lori is running from Michael Myers and she's running down the street. She bangs on a neighbor's door to get their attention, to get them to help her. She bangs and screams for help. She's saying, help me, help me. She's clearly in distress. She clearly really needs help. And these people, these adults, they turn on their light briefly. They look out the window. They're like, oh, it's just some dumb kid. And they turn off the light and they never help her. One of the messages of Halloween is the adults in your life cannot help you. The cops can't help you. Your neighbors can't help you. No one is coming to save you. The adults will not help. And that is honestly one of the most important life lessons I've ever learned and continue to learn is you're on your own, baby. The adults in your life, they don't care. You know, the cops don't want to help you. The adults don't want to help you. You are on your own. So I think that's what part of what appeals to me so much about books like this is Quinn, the main character in Clown in a Cornfield, she has to figure out how to deal with this homicidal clown in a cornfield. She has to figure out how to survive the night. She's watching all of her classmates get killed. She's watching all these people get murdered right in front of her. And there are no adults to help. Um, And I'm not going to give anything away. I'm not going to spoil anything. But just trust me, the adults do not want to help her. This town where all the older characters look at the younger characters with suspicion and with disdain. No one's coming to save you. And I'm sure this has a lot to do with my own experiences as a kid. And, you know, sometimes (laughs) I'm, like I said, I'm probably rambling quite a bit on this, this episode because frankly, I'm prone to rambling. You've probably discovered that if you are a regular listener and if you are a regular listener, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. But if you're a regular listener, you probably know how much I ramble and hopefully you find it endearing and find it interesting. If you don't, my deepest apologies. But yeah, I was going to say, um, I, <laughs> I see a therapist weekly and sometimes I talk about the projects that I'm working on with my therapist. I talked to her about the podcast and I told her I was nervous about this episode because uh, I didn't want to be all over the place. I didn't want it to be so heavily political that, you know, anybody listening is like, where's the horror? Where are the books? Can we talk about horror books now, please? But, you know, sometimes things that come up in recording these, I bring up in sessions later because everything's connected. You know, I don't think you can experience art without it affecting you or reflecting some deeper part of you. And I think that's true of this book, you know, realizing that, like I said, with Halloween and with other movies, that no one's coming to save you. No one's coming to help you. The adults are not there for you. The adults are not a safe place for you to land. I think that really resonates with this idea of older generations, you know, we can talk about economics, we can talk about different views of student loan debt or retirement or college in general and getting a job. These things change from generation to generation. But the idea that these kids are looking back at the older generation and thinking, boy, those people do not want to help us. You know, they want to go back to the way things were when, you know, queer people, people of color, people with disabilities, immigrants, people who are different from them in any way, didn't have as many opportunities, didn't have as many rights. The older people want to go back to a time when it was just about this Donna Reed version of a happy family. They want to go back to Ozzie and Harriet. They don't want to 
deal with the world as it really is and help everybody. So this whole the adults are not going to help you idea really ties into these kids who are so frustrated with these draconian rules that the older people in the town put on them. This is probably not true for somebody who grew up in like New York or LA probably, but where I'm from and a lot of people that I'm friends with growing up, all they wanted to do was get out of their hometown. Like, I got to get out of here. I got to get away. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go get a job out of state or in a bigger city or something. It's all about can't wait to get out of town. And that's a really classic trope in, you know, stories about kids, coming of age stories, um, stories about teenagers anyway, you know, can't wait to blow this town, go make something of myself somewhere, get away from all these people, Uh, just find something new, find something different live my own life somewhere else. And that's such a big part of this as well. I think horror fans will love this book. I highly recommend it. It's, it's gory, it's bloody, it's funny, it's smart. It does so much with playing with expectations, playing with horror tropes and kind of turning them on their head. And I really like that it takes a subgenre that is often perceived as quite conservative, like I talked about at the top of the show, and shows, you know, slasher does not equal conservative, whether that be politically or morally or socially, culturally, anything. I'm not just talking, you know, capital R Republican right now. I'm just talking about conservative family values, moral values. You know, you can have really progressive slashers. You know, you can do anything with the slasher subgenre. And I think Caesar is proving that with this book that, you know, it is not inherently conservative. And in my view, he doesn't want to tell anything close to a conservative story. He wants to show people there will be hateful, small-minded people in every generation. That is human nature. But hopefully, as a society, we are moving towards a more inclusive, more diverse world. There's a lot of violence in this. And, you know, this is definitely a YA book. This is not something I would hand to an eight-year-old. But I enjoy, you know, a little bit of the ultra violence. I, I like violence in my horror sometimes. Sometimes I like gratuitous violence. I like ridiculous amounts of blood and I like ridiculous kills. I There are really smart slashers out there that still have some just wicked kills in them. And I don't think that violence is necessarily something that we should shy away from in books for kids. You know, we've talked before on this show about how I think it's important for kids to deal with horror and to deal with scary things so that they can kind of work through their anxieties, work through any issues that they have, any fears that they have in a healthy way and in an entertaining way. Um, And I think slashers has a lot to do with that. Being a woman and being a woman with anxiety, watching slashers is very cathartic for me because the vast majority of the time you're dealing with a final girl in a slasher. Just like this book, Quinn is the final girl in the slasher story. And seeing these women and these girls survive and fight back against what is 99% of the time a man, seeing these women fight and survive in a world where men seek to do them harm is really cathartic and is often very inspiring for me. I think that obviously this is a book that non-binary people and that men will enjoy as well. But as a woman, it speaks to me very strongly to see a woman fighting back against a violent patriarchy. And that is also an aspect of this book. I don't think you can divorce the MAGA ideals and I don't think you can divorce the stereotypically conservative slasher rules and ideals from conservative patriarchy. All these rules about, you know, 
don't dress in a revealing way, don't have sex. They're always applied to women about governing women's bodies, what they do with their bodies. Don't drink, don't do drugs, be a good girl. So seeing final girls fight back against these rules that tell them what they can and cannot do with their own bodies, it just, it makes me feel stronger. You know, it makes me feel like, like I'm not alone in a fight against a world that wants to tell me what to do. It makes me feel like, you know, I do have the right to say that I will wear this. I will do this. My body is my own. My sexuality is my own. And it shouldn't concern you. And seeing these girls fight back with everything they've got and win, even if the slasher comes back at the end or is lurking in the shadows at the end, she survives that movie. She survives that book. That is so inspirational to me. That is so aspirational to me. It helps me keep fighting. And I think it will help young girls keep fighting who read this book. You know, there's another conversation for my therapist. That's why I love Slasher so much. Because it's about people who feel powerless taking back their power from those who seek to hurt them. That's what this book is about. It's all about power, making sure that the wrong people don't abuse that power. You know, I really appreciate y'all for listening to me. When I started this, I was hopeful that people would respond to it. I was hopeful that people would dig what I was doing, but I didn't know if anybody would care. I didn't know if anybody, anybody would listen. I'm still not sure how many people are listening, but uh, I want to give a shout out to somebody who tweeted me at Monster Books Pod on Twitter and said she was really digging the podcast. She was buying way too many books based on what I talk about, which is so thrilling to hear. I'm so excited about it. So hi, Miriam. Thank you so much for listening. It was such a thrill hearing from you on Twitter. I hope you let me know what you thought about this episode, if you're going to check this book out, because, you know, it's a great book. So hi, Miriam. Please keep listening. Thank you so much. And anybody else who subscribe, rate, review, let me know what you like. Talk to me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter way too often for my mental health. Another conversation I have with my therapist all the time. I'm on Twitter all the time. So please say hi. Please tell me, you know, if you picked a book up and if you liked it, if you listened to an episode and thought, wow, that really connects with me. That's what I like about Slashers as well. Or if you're like Jessica, girl, you really need to be a little more organized next time. That's fair. Just let me know. So, you know, I hope that I can continue doing this podcast. I I hope that y'all like it. And like I said, you know, tweet me, let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like. If you want me to, you know, give somebody a shout out on an on an episode. Let me know. I I will take requests. If you have a book you want me to talk about, let me know. I like interacting with people. I like being on Twitter. Well, sometimes I like being on Twitter, but I like talking to people who tell me nice things about my podcast on Twitter. That I do like. So (laughs) um, yeah, tweet me at monsterbookspod and let's talk about books because we're here to talk about horror books. So This long and rambling episode is almost finished, but I'll just close with Clown in a Cornfield. It's bloody, it's scary, it's suspenseful, it's funny, it's smart. It's so relevant right now. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I read it. I think it's going to be very timely and relevant for quite a while yet. And if you're a kid, if you're a teenager who listens to this, if you want to yell at me for being an old lady who doesn't know what she's talking about, please do that. I would love to hear from the youth of today and tell me how I'm doing. Or if you've you've got kids or if you've got students or, you know, library patrons that you talk to about these books, let me know what they think. Because this is a podcast about kids' books for adult readers. 
but I want to know what the target audience thinks of these books. I want to know if they're digging it, if they think that the kids are realistic, if they think my idea of teen speak is spot on or laughable. You know, let me know. I, I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow, just like we talked about. So yeah, let's just enjoy more horror together, y'all. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm back to recording after taking a bit of a break, but I really can't tell you how much I appreciate everybody who listens. So come see me on Twitter tell your friends about it if you like it. And yeah, thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Monster Books Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica, and keep it creepy, kids. Squad.